0: Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to that Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by ScientificTriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael, and this episode is Q and A number eighty four. Before we get into today's questions, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration. You can find them on PrecisionHydration.com, and if you haven't already done so, I highly recommend that you check out their free online sweat test that uh, will give you a ballpark estimate for how much you, how much sweat you lose and how much sodium you lose in your sweat. And that can then be very important information to inform your hydration strategy for both racing and training. Because if you are somebody that loses a lot of sodium in your set, then that's definitely something to consider whether you are adequately replacing it or not and if you are not that might be something that can lead to issues like uh, performance degrading or even things like cramping potentially so check them out and if you're interested in their electrolyte products you can get 15% off with the promo code that triathlon show one five and thank you to ROCA that you can find on ROCA.com. ROCA are the world leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high performance eyewear, and uh, prescription glasses and sunglasses. You can go to the landing page rocacom forward slash TTS and that will give you a 20% discount code that you can use on your entire Roka order. Check out some of the new products that have been launched in the last couple of months including the new max buoyancy wetsuit the the Roka Maverick MX and also the new sunglasses style the Matador. Now let's get into today's questions, which are from Bruce in the UK slash South Africa. Bruce writes, uh, Hi, Michael. uh, I had a couple of questions for an upcoming Q&A. First if one had the opportunity to be able to continue swimming but only in the open water with no access to a pool what would be the best way to approach this beyond just doing a long long steady swims? Should one try to simulate some of the intervals the different pacing and technique drills that one would normally do in a pool environment? All right so I'll answer this part first and uh, the short answer is Uh, yes you should try to uh, simulate things that you do in the pool environment it shouldn't really be too dissimilar from your normal swim training program many or even most of the things that you do in a pool environment can be done in the open water as well with certain adaptations so perhaps first we might start talking about what the differences might be if you are only available to swim in the open water which many of you are of course in this situation and first of all uh, drills So I'm actually not a big fan of drills anyway. I do think that the best technique practice when it comes to swimming, at least once you have the very basics down, is actually just very, very deliberate, focused, present swimming with a focus on technique, but not as part of drills, just focusing on the actual swimming action, using certain cues, perhaps, and focusing on a specific part of the stroke. Those are all fine. Uh, but uh, yeah personally not a big fan of doing isolated drills even though they do have their time in place i'm not completely against them but i just think that uh, it's not it's generally not a massive like a big part in any other programs that uh, that i prescribe to my athletes but uh, if that is a big part of your normal program then yes this likely will change and has to change in the open water because that's just not a good environment to be doing it it's just difficult to control the movement with the chop and you might not be able to see what you're doing anyway depending on where you're swimming and so on so so yeah that's uh, an aspect of swimming that you would not be doing in the open water in terms of use of equipment or swim toys so this is another area where things are changing because probably most of you swimming in the open water would be using a wetsuit Uh, there are of course certain places where you would not be doing that necessarily but for most of the listeners i think that is the case and in those circumstances different pieces of equipment like a pool boy fins and so on aren't really that relevant or beneficial the way that they are in the pool because you already get a lot of buoyancy from the wetsuit itself and uh, another important tool that uh, I really use a lot and prescribe a lot is the snorkel. And that unfortunately doesn't really work well with uh, the waves and potential chop. You will probably swallow a bit of the ocean if you do use that. So, so not, not the best to use either in the open water. The one piece of equipment that probably can see some good use in the open water would be paddles. And uh, that I don't see any reason why you could not be still be using that in the open water. And I have been doing that. and I have done that myself actually in uh, periods where I have not been swimming in the pool for a shorter period of time and only swimming in the open water. And that works just fine and uh, in, ad- in addition the tempo trainer and that is something that some of you may already be using in the pool uh, probably a lot of you don't but that is basically a metronome that has a few different modes and without going into too much detail that can be a lifesaver when trying to do structure training in the open water so definitely get a Finis tempo trainer or a similar product if there are other metronomes out there that work in the same way and start using that because that will be what allows you to trade with the same structure that you do in the pool environment and not really have to think about it not have to do stop start intervals and that sort of thing it just will make life so much easier for you so the tempo trainer is something that you will be using actually a lot more in the open water than what you would be doing in the pool Uh so all right that's uh Those are the tools and the differences between the different environments, the pool environment and the open water environment. In terms of similarities, so while you might do the odd long steady swim the way that you would do a long steady continuous run or ride, I do think that most sessions, even in the open water, you should still break up into segments or intervals if you want to call them that. And this, by this I don't mean hard intervals, for example a standard aerobic endurance swim in the pool might look something look like something very simple for example 10 times 400 meters or 10 times 500 meters with 30 seconds recoveries between intervals depending on your speed you might be doing something even shorter like 10 times 300 meters for a more a slower swimmer either way just take whatever session you would normally do in the pool so let's say your staple will be a 10 times 400 meter endurance session, take that and translate that distance to a time prescription instead. So if you normally swim aerobic intervals, whatever the distance is in, let's say, six minutes, then set your tempo trainer to beep every 30 seconds and then swim at an aerobic effort. Just keep the same effort level. You don't need to check your pace or anything like that. Just keep the right RPE and count to 12 beeps and that means six minutes because you have it set to beep every 30 seconds and then rest and go again on the following beep which will be another 30 seconds that means that you have rested for 30 seconds and To explain why I think that most people should break their swims up into intervals like this rather than doing a continuous 3,000 or 4,000 or 5,000 meter swim is simply to make sure that the technique and focus remains good throughout the set so that you build your muscle memory with as good mechanics as possible. So there's definitely... An argument for some really good swimmers might just as well swim a straight 4,000 or 5,000 meter or 6,000 meter or 7,000 meter at an aerobic effort, and they will be swimming just as well at the end of that session as at the beginning, and if and when that is the case for you by all means do so but i think most of us aren't good enough to not experience at least some degradation of technique throughout a longer set even if it's aerobic endurance which is why i think that breaking it up into those relatively long intervals with relatively short recoveries is the best way to go about those aerobic endurance sessions Now, on the other side, uh, when we have some sort of uh, intensity involved, for example, uh, let's say VO2 max, you might be doing 10 times 100 meters as your normal staple VO2 max workout in the pool. You should definitely try to simulate those types of workouts uh, in the open water as well. So again, it just comes back to translating what that distance is for you to whatever duration that means. So that might be 110 or 140 or 220, whatever it is, set your tempo trainer to beep at roughly some multiple of that time. And keep in mind here that we don't have to be exact. That's that there's really no point in doing that. It's completely meaningless. If you swim your 100s in two minutes, 20 seconds normally, then feel free to set the tempo trainer to beep every minute. And you can do two beeps on one beep off meaning two minutes of hard work and one minute of rest. So a two to one work to rest ratio. Some workouts like very short fast and intense uh, repeats like 25 meter repeats aren't really about the distance or even the duration so much as they are about just getting in a bit of work at maximal or very near maximal intensity. So this is speed work or neuromuscular work and for this type of work do not worry about setting any time or distance you don't need to use the tempo trainer here Uh, just go on feel or maybe if you want to you can count strokes so to give you an example a typical bridge between a warm-up set and a main set uh, a more intense main set might be to do four times 50 meters where the first 25 meters is building pace and the last 25 meters is uh, very fast, close to maximum, but not quite. Then this can be done as simply counting 30 pretty slow strokes or building strokes and then 20 fast strokes and then resting for whatever feels like the right amount of time to rest before going again. It really doesn't matter in that situation what, how long the rest is. So, so we can do things more field-based to some extent when training in the open water and we could do that in the pool as well of course it's not as if that's the difference here but i guess the point i'm trying to get across is that there's nothing magical about resting for exactly 10 seconds or 20 seconds. If it's 25 one between one intervals 1 and 2 and 15 between the intervals uh, 2 and 3 or so on, that really doesn't matter. So clinical precision really isn't uh, important or the end goal when it comes to training. Uh, what is important is to get the intended purpose of the workout done correctly. Uh, but for that, you don't need to follow an exact recipe. You just need to get the intended purpose right. Now there are some unique aspects to open water swimming that you might not practice in the pool that you definitely should take the chance of practicing when you are in the open water. And those include sighting. So of course include as much sighting as you possibly can in most of your sets. Uh, I think that when you do something very specific like VO2 max intervals or or that I described, or threshold intervals, or something quite intense, you might not need to focus so much on the sighting as you focus more on the effort and the speed and just yeah just working hard you still probably will need to do that of course depending on especially on if there's any traffic in the water and so on and where you're swimming from and towards Uh, sighting is never going to go away completely and that's a good thing but I think that you can take the opportunities that you have during the more the easier lower intensity swimming to practice on sighting even more specifically and be really deliberate about that and Then when you do that hard work, the main purpose is more so the physiological demands and not the specific technical demands of sighting so sighting takes a takes a bit of a backseat in terms of priorities during those segments then another unique aspect in open water swimming is of course the different conditions you might encounter from very flat conditions to very very choppy uh, or big surf so if you have a day with a bit more wind and a bit more chop don't take that as an opportunity to uh, postpone your swim to the next day when the forecast says it's going to be just flat again but actually take that as an opportunity to practice swimming in those uh, different conditions in the bigger chop and drafting Well, right now is uh, probably maybe not the best time to practice drafting, especially not in any bigger packs, bigger than more than two people. But perhaps if you're swimming with somebody from the same household, then right now is a great time to go out and do some Uh, some two people or uh, two people drafting and take turns to pull in uh, whatever the workout calls for and just practice staying on the hip or staying on the feet of the person in front of you and then taking turns to do that race starts including either running in from the beach and running back up onto the beach or a deep water start those would be a couple of other, uh, other things to, to practice. And transitions. So quickly removing your wetsuit. And that's something that when you swim in the open water, always do a transition practice at the end where you practice quickly removing your wetsuit. And that's how you do a really fast T1 on race day. So integrate all of these aspects in your swimming, but in a way that makes sense based on the purpose of the workout. So as mentioned in that one, 10 times 100 VO2 max example, the purpose would be to get a lot of good work at a very at a very high intensity at close or at close to or at your maximum aerobic capacity and uh, that might not be possible on a day with really big surf so maybe move that workout to a day with better conditions if that happens to be the the case on the day and also that is a workout that you can only do Drafting, if you are with a very evenly matched swimming companion, so don't try to combine drafting with uh, a swimming companion of different ability to yourself with that kind of workout, but you could combine that potentially with more of a an easy aerobic or recovery swim so uh so that's uh those are some examples of how to think about getting the main purpose of the workout or the set done and integrating some other aspects as uh as and when possible so to sum up you can absolutely do a similar swim program to what you do indoors you would have to skip most of the toys except paddles and uh, skip drills but uh, as i said i think that the best technique practice is very deliberate practice of the complete swim stroke and not in terms of isolated drills per se but it does require a strong focus and presence and in terms of workouts you can and should do the same types of workouts that you normally do so if you normally do two low intensity swims in a given week one high intensity swim with shorter and faster intervals and one moderate intensity swim with longer intervals at a sub-maximal intensity then do those same types of workouts in the open water Translate the distances that you would do in the pool to durations instead and use the Finis Tempo Trainer. Set it to cycle so that you can do a certain number of beeps as your work duration and another number of beats off. For example, three beats on, one beat off, whatever works depending on the durations that you're working with. And finally, integrate some of the unique aspects of open water swimming into your training, like sighting, swimming in different conditions, drafting, and race starts and transitions. So that's uh, question number one from Bruce. And uh, the second question is, uh, let me see here, I lost it. Oh, there we go. It seems there are many different ways to perform a test for threshold and maximum heart rate And then again, different methods or formulas to set one's heart rate zones from those results. I have noticed for me that using different methods to calculate heart rate zones leads to different results, which can then affect the intensity at which one trains. This can be confusing and begs the question, how do you choose or know what method might be preferable for your circumstances? Thanks again for the great show and training plans, Bruce. All right, thank you, Bruce. This is a great, great question because it is uh, such a real issue that comes up time and time, and time again, really. And I think this really uh, pertains to heart rate zones more so than it does to power and pace. Uh, power and pace, there's, they seem to have a bit more of a consensus going on around them and heart rate tends to be a bit more all over the map. For example, just using myself and my uh, cycling threshold, lactate threshold heart rate of 150. If I plug plug that into the heart rate threshold, calcul- heart rate zones calculator in training peaks where I can choose some of the different formulas that you mentioned, uh, for example, starting with Joe Friels for cycling heart rate zones, then my zone two ends up being 121 to 34 beats per minute and my zone 4 ends up being 40, 141 to 153. Actually, in real terms, that's zone 4 plus zone 5A, if anybody's wondering. On the other hand, if I plug in that same 150 threshold heart rate into the Coggan zone methodology, my zone 2, instead of being 121 to 34, is now 103 to 25 and zone four is more similar to what it already was at 142 to 58. But there you can see that it goes all the way to 58 instead of just 53. And I know that at 158 beats per minute, I'm really, really flustered and definitely working at a high VO2 max effort. So so that's way past threshold for me. So, So two, again, would be a lot lower with that set of zones, but the same sort of width of the zone. Zone four would go ex- extend much higher because it's so much wider than Joe Friel's zones. And just as a quick third example, the 80-20 training zones gives me 122 to 135 for zone two. So very similar to Joe Friel's, Friel zone. And uh, it would give me 143 to 150 for uh, threshold. So in the 80-20 zones, they would be what they call zone three. And those are only the methods, some of the methods based on lactic threshold heart rate. We haven't even started with maximum heart rate or even heart rate reserve based zones. So let me start by giving a recommendation here to a lot of listeners that use training peaks. And actually to all listeners, because even if you don't use training peaks, I do think that all of these calculators are available elsewhere on the internet or at least the the percentages used so you can do your own calculation and of all of these kind of well established or well known calculators if you if you call it well established when they are so different then I actually prefer Joe Friel and specifically Joe Friel's cycling heart rate zones and I use them both for heart rate or I prefer them both for heart rate and for running as opposed to his running training zones. The 80-20 endurance calculators are actually quite similar to Joe Friel but I'm very annoyed to say the least by their naming convention with them being called zone one, zone two, zone x, zone three, zone y, zone four and so on. Uh, which is uh, an indication that zone x and zone uh, zone y are the zones that you should avoid and i strongly believe that there is a time and place for all types of training uh, across the spectrum and it's either way with heart rate it's it's impossible to avoid hitting the continuum of heart rates anyway uh, which you might be able to do with power it would be a bit of a different story but I just don't see the point of using the zone X and zone Y So, so y as gray zones to avoid. So that's uh, a long winded way of saying that if you want to use any of the auto calculations in training peaks, my recommendation is to go for Joe Freel for cycling. So if you do use that, obviously what you need is first a good input because a garbage in, a garbage out applies as ever. So how do you then get a good estimate for your threshold heart rate? My recommendation, and this is what I do for myself and for the athletes that I coach, is to look at your last three to six months of training and take the top five uh, maximum heart rates across 60 minutes and the top five maximum heart rates across 20 minutes that you've done. And separately for the sports, of course, so separately for running and cycling And your lactate threshold heart rate will probably fall somewhere in between those two. So when you take the average of the top 60-minute heart rates and uh, the average of your top 20-minute heart rates. So for example, the average of my top five 60-minute heart rates is 146, where the number one maximum is 150. And the average for my top five 20-minute heart rates is 156, where the number one maximum is 160. And the average of 146 and 156 is 151. So I could use that as an estimate for my lactic threshold heart rate. And I use 150, so that falls very close to what I use already. Now, to get these top fives and the averages and so on, I have built a lot of custom-made charts in the WKO software to keep track of these things easily for myself and the athletes that I coach. Uh, So I realized that finding your top five might not necessarily be... uh, An easy thing, although I think you could do that with training peaks, peak performances function. So do look into that. That might actually be possible, but you can definitely find your top one of each. And if that is the case, then I would just recommend to take your top 60 minute heart rate and take 94% of your top 20 minute heart rate. For me, that means that I take 149 as my 60 minute heart rate and I take 90. 0.94 0.94 times 160 equals 150.4 as uh, the second uh, number that i described and i can average and round that and then i get 150 essentially as my lactate threshold heart rate and which is again what i use keep in mind that two to three beats per minute uh, one way or another is neither here nor there there is always some margin of error present and your threshold heart rate really isn't a number but it's a range of heart rates so so we don't have to be too worried about getting the exact number right the the range of your threshold heart rate might be six to eight beats per minute wide even in controlled conditions so in on the same uh, indoor bike training setup in the same, same temperature with the same ventilation and so on but uh, that is uh, an example of how i would go about estimating lactic threshold heart rate That is my preference to use historical training data and uh, sort of peak performances but not use just one data point but use multiple and uh, then if you have that estimate then I do think that Joe Friel's cycling zones are pretty good and a decent starting point for most. One thing that I should mention though is that you need to make sure with all of these uh, peak heart rates that you're using as your input for estimating your lactate threshold make sure that they are accurate go and look into the actual workout files and make sure that they're not artifacts and uh, error errors in measurement that you might find with some spikes and so on or just the heart rate monitor acting really weird every now and then that happens for most athletes so make sure that you don't have any of those numbers only use real actual data that is trustworthy and accurate so that's it uh, for the estimating your heart, lactate threshold heart rate and using the Joe Friel's zones. An even better way than doing just that, even though I said that that's a good starting point, which it is. But I think an even better way is to cross-reference uh, a zone type of zones based on lactate threshold with uh, zones based on maximum heart rate. This is a bit more advanced, but uh, I'll just walk you through my process for doing it. And for those of you that want to try it, then feel free. And for those that want a more simple option, go for the Joe Friel cycling zones and just get a, a good estimate for your lactate threshold heart rate, as I already described. But uh, in this, uh, This second scenario more advanced scenario i would also look at an athlete's maximum heart rate from the same period so from the last three to six months i would generally choose three months if they have enough training and enough data from that period if they would be more of a low volume athlete perhaps i would use four or five or six months but uh, i would average the their top five maximum heart rates again making sure that uh, we don't have any errors in there so just use actual real data and in my example my personal example my maximum cycling heart rate is 174 but the average of my top five max heart rates that I've measured in the last three months is 170 so I would then split the difference between that maximum and the average of the top five and use 172 as my maximum heart rate unless they are all within one or two beat of each other which in my case they're not because a lot of the top five are kind of 168 169 so it's actually quite far from 174 but if all of my numbers were 170 171 172 i would just use the highest one outright when i have these kind of larger differences i would choose the average between the number one maximum and the average of the top five maximum either way that would be my estimate for my maximum heart rate so 172 is what i'm using now as my max heart rate and i have my preferred zone system or calculations which isn't any better or worse than any other Uh, it's just the one that i've come to use and uh, my athletes use it and the users of my training plan plans use it and I will link to the calculator which is a google sheet Uh, note about this that uh, you need to click file and make a copy to use it you cannot request access to it because then you will change things in it so I don't give access to the original spreadsheet it's for you to click file and make a copy and you will have your own copy of it that you can then uh, alter as much as you want to Uh, it's all very very clearly written in the instructions so just follow them Either way in that spreadsheet you can get your heart rate zones both based on your uh, threshold heart rate and your maximum heart rate. So the important part here is that I cross reference those threshold based zones with the max heart rate based zones and if they are very similar then things are all very good and then I just tend to choose the set of zones that gives a slightly higher zone 2 or high end of zone 2 I should say and in this in my particular example when I use a threshold heart rate of 150 beats per minute what I actually do is that the input that the spreadsheet asks for is your average 20 minute heart rate so I just add a number there that gives the output of 150 beats per minute for my threshold heart rate and then I add 172 as my input for maximum heart rate and I get those two sets of training zones zone 1 through zone 5 I use a 5 zone system and I see that Actually, they both align extremely well, exceptionally well. If you go and try with these numbers, you'll see that they are very, very close within one or two beats per minute. That is not the norm. And it doesn't have to be that exact an alignment. Uh, But uh, if you have four or five beats per minute of a difference, that's not a big deal. Then again, I would just go with the one that gives you a slightly higher zone too. Uh, But uh, if you have a bit of a bigger discrepancy then chances are that one or both of your lactate threshold heart rate or your maximum heart rate are incorrect. So go back and look at where they came from and if the basis of them really is solid data. And uh, if it's not, then uh, perhaps you need to just rely on the one that comes from more solid data. Because as we already said, garbage in, garbage out. So just rely on one. If you know that your you're you pretty confident in your threshold heart rate estimate then use that if you're not but you're confident in your max heart rate estimate use that so that's uh, that's how i would use the cross validation between the two types of zones and choose one or the other and especially if both of them align that's when you can be quite confident that you have a good set of zones if they're not aligned then you still have a bit of uncertainty there of course In terms of specific protocols to establish uh, your uh, different maximum heart rates that I've described here as inputs, so one-hour maximum heart rate and 20-minute maximum heart rate and just pure maximum heart rate, the one-hour data and also, I would say, the 20-minute max heart rate data, it just comes from hard workouts and races. I don't prescribe specific tests for that. Although that being said, all of my athletes will at some point do some sort of all-out testing time trial testing and that might be either a classic 20 minute uh, FTP test or it might be an inside test which has uh, a set of time trials generally up to 12 minutes these days with the updated protocol so shorter than 20 minutes Uh, but all-out tests like that I would say if the duration is between four and 20 minutes long they tend to elicit good estimates of your maximum heart rate personally i know that i need quite a long time i generally think that i can't really reach my maximum heart rate unless i have at least a 10 minute time trial uh, a five minute time trial or a six minute time trial just won't cut it for me to really reach maximum but that's just me and for some three minutes or four minutes or five minutes will be just fine it really varies for, from individual to individual but if you do different ones you do a five minute time trial and a 20 minute time trial then you can probably be sure that one of the maximum heart rates that you got the the highest number you got from one of those time trials is probably not far off from your actual maximum heart rate if you really went all out in those uh, in those time trials so so that is how to establish the different input numbers again one hour heart rate data comes from training and on racing data historical data not from specific testing the same goes for 20 minute heart rate data except in cases where an athlete might have done a 20 minute test then of course that forms one data point but you will also have data points that come from just training sessions or races and then the maximum heart rate well again it comes from training but also it ends up happening organically in those all-out tests that i prescribe to my athletes from time to time now if you are confident that both your lactate threshold heart rate and your maximum heart rate are well established and you still see a discrepancy between those two sets of zones or whatever sets of zones that you use does not really fit with what you're experiencing this is really where the art of coaching comes in so if if i were coaching you i would ask you how do you feel at certain heart rates? I would maybe design a workout just for that. So ask you to raise heart rate gradually and note down your RPE. And when I also see your power data or your pace data, if you're running, then I would simply customize the heart rate zones so that they fit both your RPE, but also your power and pace zones. And this assumes that we have already established your power and pace zones, which is generally a lot easier to do than heart rate zones. So, so that is a fair assumption to make but you can also do this for yourself and uh, i think that the important breakpoints here that you should identify are the high end of zone 2 and your threshold heart rate so to establish the former the high end of zone 2 that is simply the heart rate at which you can still talk pretty much unhindered with no huffing and puffing and no needing to catch your breath every few words you should essentially be able to talk in complete sentences And for the latter, for establishing your lactate threshold heart rate, I keep coming back to just looking at your historical data of your maximum 60-minute heart rates. But if you don't do a lot of long and solid workouts that would give you something uh, that is anywhere near close to your maximum 60-minute heart rate, then maybe just select a heart rate that you know based on perceived effort that you could hold just about for 45 to 60 minutes. And ideally, actually get on the bike or get out on the roads and test that but you don't necessarily have to do that if you're fairly confident in in your assessment and one final type of training zones that can be useful if all else fails is actually heart rate reserve which is less used but it is actually a very good system for this you need to know your maximum heart rate as we already discussed but also your resting heart rate and what I do is that, because myself and most of my athletes, we use HRV for training every morning to measure heart rate variability, but also resting heart rate. That means that uh, resting heart rate of each of my athletes syncs to training peaks and to WKO. And in WKO, I keep track of the 90-day moving averages of resting heart rate. And that 90-day moving average is what I what I use. Your heart rate reserve is your maximum heart rate minus your resting heart rate. So for me, there would be 172 minus 46 equals 126 beats per minute. Then I use set percentages to set my training zones based on that heart rate reserve of 126. So one would be my, my um, resting heart rate up until my resting heart rate plus 55% of heart rate reserve. So 55% to 126. Zone 2 would go from the top of zone 1 until resting heart rate. So 46 plus 67% of 126 or heart rate reserve. And zone 3 would go to uh, resting heart rate plus 79% of heart rate reserve. And zone 4 would go from the top of zone 3 to, to resting heart rate plus 90% of heart rate reserve. And this set of percentages is similar to what coach and physiologist and former elite marathoner Pete Fitzinger used in his book Advanced Marathoning. So to summarize all of this, I know this is a lot of information and a lot of numbers, and uh, uh, if you kept up, I am very impressed and. Uh, I realize now that this was a very chunky answer to the question. I gave you a lot of different options here and no straight answers really. But the important thing to note is that there is no absolutely correct method. Even getting a lactate test in a lab isn't really going to necessarily give you a good estimate for your lactate threshold heart rate because you might have a completely different temperature and ventilation in that lab compared to your training environment which is why I prefer to base the lactate threshold heart rate and max heart rate on historical but relatively recent training and racing data and also not just rely on one number but rely on the top five and obviously make sure that you exclude artifacts so look into the actual files and only use files that are seem like legit heart rate data. As for which calculation system to use to set your zones, well my calculator which i'll link to in the episode description joe friel's cycling zones uh, or eighty twenty zones or some other system it really doesn't matter too much in the end as long as you fulfill the number one priority that actually which is that zone two should be an aerobic training zones so make the top end of zone two a level where you can still talk in complete sentences and in all honesty the higher training zones it's nice to have like good like matching heart rate zones that sort of get a nice decent overlap with your power or pace data but I actually always prescribe those kinds of workouts primarily with power or pace or RPE and heart rate secondarily so so it isn't that important actually to get those right and you can with time you can tweak your heart rate zones at those higher zones so that they actually align with what you perceptually feel like when you're working in zone 3, zone 4, and zone 5. And of course, that they align with your power or pace zones. So perhaps just go and do some workouts in each of those zones. Like in zone 3, you could do a one-hour tempo effort. In zone 4, you could do a 30-minute threshold effort. And at uh, in zone 5, you could do five times three minutes at VO2 max, and see what sorts of heart rates you get in each of those zones and uh, tweak in each of those workouts and tweak your zones accordingly. And then the more you train and just observe how heart rate tracks uh, to the effort you're putting out, whether it's RPE or actual power or pace, then the more you'll be able to say without even testing or putting your zones through a calculator. Uh, that all right these are my zones i know that based on how i feel that when i go to a certain level that's when i enter zone three or zone four and so on i can just feel it but that being said realize that there is always going to be discrepancies between your power or pace zones and your heart rate zones and that's nothing to get hung up on there isn't going to be and uh, there doesn't need to be a perfect overlap between the two and finally, use heart rate to direct your training only if you are very confident in your zones. If you are currently less than confident, then base your training off of power or pace or RPE and all, or a combination of all three of them instead. And over time, once you get more and better heart rate data, then it can start to play a bigger role in actually being a leading indicator for you and something you follow rather than a lagging indicator that you just just observe. But again, my coaching methodology is to almost always prescribe work in Zone 3 and above based on a combination of pace, power, and RPE. And uh, even Zone 2 work is really not exclusively based on heart rate. Heart rate is just as important as pace and power and RPE, but uh, they all form part of the input to doing a zone two workout or a zone one workout for that matter it's always a mix of those measures of intensity so i hope that this helps bruce and that's it for today keep sending in those questions to michael at scientifictrafflon.com and that's michael with a k uh, just a quick reminder that uh, the free covid19 training plan is available on scientifictrafflon.com if you haven't downloaded it please go and do so. It's already been downloaded now almost 800 times, I believe. So that's really great. And thank you, everybody, who has given uh, positive feedback for the plan. And uh, it's good to know that people are still training and and really ambitious and have goal-oriented and want to improve even though we don't have any races on the immediate horizon. I think that's it for today. Let's finish off by thanking our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. You can get 15% off your electrolyte products with the promo code one 15 And thank you to Roka for sponsoring the podcast. Go and check out their wetsuits, dry suits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses. And in particular, check out their new products, the uh, Maverick MX Max Buoyancy Wetsuit and the Matador Sunglasses. And you can get 20% off your order on roca.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.